This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems, delivering innovation for civilian and military connectivity. It is time to expect more from your network. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The new budget request from the White House includes a 2.7% pay raise request for civilian federal employees. The budget plan asks for $197 million for the Office of Personnel Management. FCW reports the budget request doesn't specify how much of that percentage increase for pay would go to locality pay. That budget request includes a $9.8 billion request for cybersecurity. $500 million of that money would go to the Technology Modernization Fund for cyber projects. NextGov reports the request lists $750 million for response to the SolarWinds incident. The Defense Department will continue to defend the Jedi Cloud contract in court. A joint status report the department filed Friday in response to Amazon Web Services says the court proceedings could continue into October. Defense News reports that would be about the two-year anniversary of the date the Pentagon awarded the contract to Microsoft. Federal Chief Information Officer Claire Martirana and the Federal CIO Council are working on a new IT modernization strategy for the entire government. As more security breaches emerge, the White House continues to roll out cybersecurity directives. Dan Chenix, Executive Director of the IBM Center for the Business of Government. He's former Chief of the Information Policy and Technology Branch at OMB. Margie Graves is Executive Vice Chair at ACT-IAC. She's former Deputy Federal CIO. They're writing about modernization at the Business of Government blog. Friends, welcome. It's good to see both of you. Dan, I start with you. Based on what you've seen work in the past, what are the elements of a successful IT strategy that agencies should be thinking about now? Well, thanks, Francis. Thanks for having us on to talk about a topic that Margie and I have worked on for uh, many years, uh, dating back to when I was at OMB uh, in the early 2000s. And uh, IT modernization strategies have proven successful when they have a number of elements. Um, the first is it is a technology strategy. So addressing emerging technologies, things like artificial intelligence and products process automation in the near term, but also thinking about the long-term technology around quantum computing and the promise of next-generation encryption and how, how those work effectively. Another element around an IT strategy is about what's broader than technology, what technology enables, the data that allows agencies to make decisions that comes more quickly through the technology that is enabled uh, uh, through modernization. Then a third area is collaboration. Um, technology strategy isn't just about OMD, it isn't just about CIOs also about their CXO brethren, CFOs, program leaders. Importantly, industry that's providing the services and solutions uh, has, has a stake in, in the modernization strategy, as is the nonprofit community, the good government world. Um, so all of these things enable an action-oriented, open and flexible technology strategy. Margie, I take all of Dan's points, but I, I think the first one has the most impact, and that is this stuff has to make a difference in the way an agency delivers on mission, doesn't it? It has to make a difference in the way that the employee, whether it's an IT employee or somebody else, serves the public, turns out to be something that the public actually sees, right? Yeah, absolutely, Francis, and it's codified in OMB A11 that the high-impact service providers, so agencies like VA, HHS, and SSA that provide benefits to the public, as well as the IRS who collects taxes and 
the Department of Education who provides education loans, all agencies that have these kinds of services that are public facing are absolutely critical to the mission of the federal government. And it's codified in OMBA 11 that they're required to submit plans for customer experience improvements with measurements and metrics. Agencies employ methodologies like co-creation and customer journey mapping, where technologists and customers sit side by side and design the visual experience together. And I recall one developer at VA having a cup of coffee at Starbucks with a veteran as he tried to apply for benefits through a newly designed web page. And she observed the actual interaction and noted the areas where the applicant was struggling and fixed those areas going forward. So embedding the customer in the process every step of the way is key. And DevSecOps also uses this approach for software development where a collaboration team consists of tech, security, customer, and operations so that everyone's on the same page. And finally, you need to measure the customer satisfaction. The surveys at the end of the transaction are key for continuous improvement. So you see those when you interact with your bank, you know, a little survey pops up and says, how was your experience? Uh, these are the same kinds of things that we're pursuing in the federal government. Uh, Dan, you and Margie in this blog post make a connection that I have not seen made before in all the conversation about the Technology Modernization Fund, and that's to the president's management agenda. We don't have a PMA yet, but it strikes me we already know what the cross-agency priority goals are that have made it from administration to administration to administration. Does it make sense to pay attention to those cap goals when we're thinking about particular projects or when we're thinking about an overarching monetization strategy across government? Right, well, your question really gets to the impact of the Technology Modernization Fund and modernization strategies for uh, broader agency goals. And uh, those, the management agenda uh, is really the representation of a strategy of an administration where technology can be a key driver and a key enabler. And that strategy needs to be engender public confidence in the way that Margie described around involving uh, the citizen and the customer of government. It also needs to be thought of as an enterprise. It's really all about how technology enables this broader management framework that will be embodied in the PMA when it is released um, and how that incorporates these cross-agency goals that came across uh, multiple administrations to provide services and enable budget reforms to really drive real change. Uh, Margie, uh, the current federal CIO, uh, Claire Martirana, has said that she wants to see uh, product, uh, projects with big impact um, when uh, agencies submit for the Technology Modernization Fund. What drives that? What magnifies the impact of modernization strategies? Well, Francis, I think the key is looking at end-to-end um, -end mission processes that might include uh, multiple agencies uh, where we could apply a shared service or a common platform that would uh, make all boats rise with the tide. So all of the systems of systems that are involved in that end-to-end -end business process would actually be uplifted. And in addition to that, um, some of the projects should be the ones that solve the big uh, gnarly problems that have existed for some time, like uh, uh, modernization of mainframes or, or uh, you know, adoption of a, a new kind of technology in terms of AI or ML that's going to enable the um, pulling value from data. So if you look at those kinds of projects that have a cross-government enterprise impact, I think that's what she's referring to. Margie Graves, Dan Chenick, great blog post. Thanks very much for joining me. I appreciate your time today. Thank, Thank you.
Coming next, a Senate plan that could blow up the thrift savings plan. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the potential problems ahead for your retirement account. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Proposals to change the investments people can choose in the thrift savings plan discriminate against participants, and those changes could kill the I-Fund for investors. That's according to Kim Weaver, Director of External Affairs, the Federal Retirement Thrift Investment Board. Kim, thanks very much for joining me today. I've known you for a long time. We've, we've known each other, worked together for many years. I don't think I've ever heard you speak out this directly and this dramatically about a proposal to impact the thrift savings plan. Senator Tuberville of Alabama has made a proposal. Why do you, what is it, and why do you think it's a bad idea? So Senator Tuberville's um, offered an amendment, filed an amendment to a pending Senate bill that deals with U.S. competitiveness uh, against China. And Senator Tuberville's amendment would say that the TSP could not invest in any um, stock that was uh, by an entity in the People's Republic of China and or any subsidiary. And then in addition, the mutual fund window, which the TSP is planning on offering next summer, also could not have any stock that was um, Chinese from the People's Republic of China. And there are any number of problems with this. First of all, it discriminates against the TSP participants because it doesn't affect any other um, American who can invest in whatever company they want. And our bottom line is um, it is not about China. It is not about any particular country. It is about fairness and equity, and the TSP should not have any restrictions placed on it that are not placed on every other American. That's the fundamental point. But when it comes to our current I-Fund, our current I-Fund is invested in developed countries. It includes Hong Kong, which is clearly part of the People's Republic of China. That would either require us to divest from those stocks, which would incur costs for our participants or require us to um, eliminate the I-Fund because there are no widely recognized indexes that have um, developed markets and ex exclude Hong Kong. So it sounds like in order to accomplish what the senator wants to accomplish, you basically would have to tear apart the funds that you have now sufficiently that they wouldn't really be what they are now, that you would basically have to reconstruct all of these. Am I hearing you right? It, it applies to the, the iPhone solely, but more, yes. So it applies to the iPhone, the, the C, S, and F fund are solely domestic. And we double checked, um, as you might imagine, that that, that would not be affected. Um, so the iPhone would be different and almost necessarily not as good as. And then with the mutual fund window, which allows, will allow TSP participants to take a portion of their account through and invest in more than 5,000 mutual funds that will be offered on that platform. Um, there's no practical, affordable way for either us or the mutual fund window provider to check 
5,000 different mutual funds to make sure that some mutual fund uh, runner has not purchased a single stock from China. And so we would just not offer the mutual fund, which would really be a loss of um, options for our participants. Yeah, the mutual fund window is something you and I have talked about before, and you offered that because specifically because participants wanted that opportunity. They wanted to have access to things that they don't have access to in the funds that the TSP offers now. And so it strikes me that that kind of defeats the purpose of all of the work that you've put into building up to the mutual fund window if you wind up turning around and never opening it in the first place, right? Exactly right. Um, yeah, we know that our participants want to have the opportunity to vote, invest in a wide variety of things. And um, the mutual fund window would allow them to do that. And it would be quite a shame to, to not be able to provide that opportunity to our, our participants. Um, a rather busy monthly board meeting last week. What uh, what else was noteworthy that uh, the, the board learned about this time? We did, we reported out on um, our first ever retirement readiness financial wellness survey that we did of our own participants. And um, it was asking them what was their perception of their own retirement readiness their own financial um, uh, comfort, if it, you will. And what we learned was uh, a, num a, a good number of our participants uh, have emergency savings accounts, which is awesome because that means that they're less likely to have to take things like hardship withdrawals that permanently delete or deplete their uh, TSP accounts. And they also gave us some suggestions on different kinds of calculators, different kinds of education that they might want from us. And so we'll be drawing on that in the future as we de develop new new materials for our participants. We have about 30 seconds left, Kim. I know you like to compare or you, uh, with what private sector organizations are doing that provide the same services that you provide to federal employees. Will you or can you compare the data that you got from that survey with similar surveys that private sector companies uh, take of their participants? We, uh, on many accounts, we found that we were either better than what private sector, and, and in any given question, it's never quite an apples to apples comparison, but we were, we were pleased with the outcomes that our participants felt that they were um, positioned as well or better than those participants in um, private sector plans. Kim Weaver, thanks very much as always. Thank you, Francis. Up next, data drives one of the administration's most important efforts. Straight ahead on Government Matters, hitting equity goals all across government by the numbers. Don't forget, if you miss an episode on Gov of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. We'll be right back. The Biden administration's first marker on small business contracting goals is for 15% of the money to go to small disadvantaged businesses. That noble goal, though, might not be the right answer or even an attempt to solve the right problem. Stan Soloway is president and CEO of Solero Strategies. He's former deputy undersecretary of defense for acquisition reform, and he's writing about diversity and acquisition in GovExec. Stan, thanks very much for coming on. As always, you write in this piece, this is the perfect time to ask questions about whether whether we're even measuring 
the right thing. What's the right, what are we measuring now, and what do you think is the possible thing that we should be measuring instead? So let me start with the premise that I think when you have an opportunity like this with a, a marker, as you put it, uh, laid out there by the administration, the request for information the administration put out a few weeks ago, looking across a number of areas of equity and diversity, the first thing we got to do is get the right data. Uh, this this is administration that's very committed to, to, to data-driven policy, evidence-driven policy. So to your question specifically about what, what are we not measuring, we know kind of how much money goes to small businesses and small disadvantaged businesses as prime contractors. We generally know that. We know a little bit about subcontracting dollars, but we don't know very much. And so I think there's a whole slew of data that we need to collect to make sure that we are driving towards the outcome we all want, which is closing the wealth and economic gaps, really creating diversity and opportunity. So if you think about a 15% goal, that's about opportunity for contracts. But then the second question becomes, what's the outcome? Does that actually drive greater wealth in the broadest and, and most positive sense of the term for a broadest possible community? Does that really help close the economic disparities that we know exist across the society? Uh, so there's, I think, uh, several sets of questions that need to be asked. And the opportunity before us really is to ask them and step back and say, all right, there's a number of things we know we do that are important. We have small business goals. We have small disadvantaged business goals, which are broken down into multiple subcategories. All of that is really important. But is there more or some other kind of mix that we need to do? And that requires us to get into what kind of work is being contracted? What kind of work is being subcontracted? What is happening to smaller companies as they grow? Are they able to sustain what they started uh, because the market forces, not because of the quality of the company, but the market forces begin to have impact? So there's a number of set of questions in there. How much of the data problem is a collection problem where either the government or the primes aren't keeping track of who's getting what in, at the sub-level, and how much of it is a curation problem where maybe that information's being collected but nobody's doing anything with it right now? Well, it's probably a little bit of both, and let me be really clear. I'm not gonna, I don't wanna suggest that we wanna create a whole new regime of data collection and compliance requirements on companies, be they large or small. I don't think that would help anybody. But I do think there's data available, and technology enables us to capture depths and detail in data that we never could capture before. So there's a little bit of data that's out there that probably is not being curated, as you put it, uh, curated well. But then there's other data that could relatively easily be collected to start looking at um, some of the key points. So I'll give you one example. So if, if I look at subcontracting dollars, there are two big issues with subcontracting in my mind, if I were a small business. One is I don't get past performance for my work. And in order to qualify as a prime contractor on the government, I need to have a past performance record. So how do I start doing things like providing more past performance opportunities to small businesses? Second, how do I look at the quality of the work, the nature of the work? Is there value, high value work, work that actually can enable upward mobility as opposed to sort of flat commoditized work that's being subcontracted? Now, if I'm a company, the prime, I obviously am going to keep as much of the high value work as I can but there, maybe there are incentives we can build into the process. But before we even start getting into the discussion of what the policies incentives ought to be, we need to actually understand what the data tells us. All right, you call this RFI unusual in this piece. What about it is so much different than what we've seen before? I actually don't recall, and I'm happy to be corrected on this, but I actually don't recall a kind, the kind of crowdsourcing effort that we're seeing with this RFI. I think it's great, by the way. I think, it, so I mean that in a very positive sense where basically the administration's come out to the world and said, help us think these issues through. Here are six or seven areas that we're most concerned about, access and insurance of benefits, public benefits programs, which is a whole other area which we've talked about before, 
procurement grants and so forth, um, but as an, in, in essentially a crowdsourcing methodology saying, come one, come all, give us your ideas you have until I think it's early July or mid July. Um, that's a pretty unusual step. I don't recall that being done before. And I think it's great. I think it just opens the door to all kinds of new thinking. It's also potentially going to put a heavy burden on the administration trying to wade through what I suspect is going to be a huge volume of input. All right, you're asking for a baseline here so we know where we're starting and then can determine where we need to go. What does that baseline look like to, in your view, Stan? Not numbers necessarily, but construct. Yeah, so I think the baseline needs to include um, really understanding a what the definitions are because there is some confusion what a small business small disadvantaged business might be in terms of just the, the legal construct uh, prime dollars and subcontracting dollars going to different kinds of small disadvantaged businesses as well as the quality of work there are several tiers that are involved there we need to have a full picture of that we need to understand kind of the issue of where work is being done which is another piece of the puzzle i think in terms of really driving diversity is there more value in providing SDB work in the Washington metropolitan area, which I'm not against, I don't want to be negative here, which is a relatively well-off neighborhood area versus an area in the Rust Belt or a rural area that is really struggling economically. And so how do we how do we figure out what, what what's flowing to those areas, what's not, what incentives could work? So we need kind of a baseline of data and and, and, and different options. And then you can build a really a powerful and I think very exciting policy platform from that. Stan Soloway, thanks very much as always. Welcome back. It's great to have you back on the program. Great to see you, Francis. Thanks. You can find a link to Stan's piece at govmatters.tv slash resources. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of the show, it's on our website too. And you get a preview of every show when you sign up for our daily program guide. You just text govmatters to the number 58671. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by James Mahoney and Drew Friedman. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrice Haddon. Our director of content is Alan Holmes. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group. You have been listening to the Government Matters Podcast, sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. Stay tuned for a brief interview with Tony Bardo of Hughes. Tony Bardo is Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, it's great to talk to you again. I thought of you the other day because I saw another agency make an award on the Enterprise Infrastructure Solutions contract at General Services Administration. You have been telling me for a long time about how important this contract is. Why is it so important, Tony? It's so important because 
the agencies have been dealing with 20-year-old network technology um, for 20 years. And, and basically, this is their opportunity to use this important contract to modernize the network, to keep up with constituents who are demanding more digital-centric services. And the government needs the, the network to, uh, to step up to those uh, expectations. This is a long-term contract. How is it built so that when Hughes rolls out something cool, say, five years from now, that the agencies will be able to access that? The agencies will be able to leverage new technologies that come down the line during the life of this contract? GSA's got a good plan for that. They've got a plan for the on-ramping of, of services. Uh, frankly, the, the, the current SD-WAN movement is an example of that. SD-WAN did not exist when EIS was awarded. But GSA's been working hard with the agencies and with the primes to add these services. So what's important is that the agencies demand that the, um, that, that the primes offer various kinds of SD-WAN solutions. There are a number of them out there. They need to not just offer their direct example, examples of uh, proprietary services, but there are multiple platforms. Agencies should really meet with the primes and say, here's what I want. Here's, what I want to, here's where I want to go over the next 10 to 15 years. Time is of the essence, it strikes me, Tony, because uh, there's a countdown clock going here for agencies to get these contracts awarded. Um, if you're just starting this process at the beginning, first of all, shame on you, I guess. But um, secondly, what's the role of the vendor to help uh, uh, an agency move the ball? Well, I think, I think the idea here is to, if you haven't gotten started yet, make sure you're asking the right questions of industry, that you're asking for the right kind of services. If you're still s stuck on an RFP or a format that asks for older technology, there are, and, and there are unfortunately, Francis, a number of RFPs and fair opportunities out there that have asked for the old stuff. And it's it's like, the, the to, to some extent, I'm, I'm, I'm advocating for timeline be damned, you ought to, Stop, stop the presses, start over again and recast the requirement to reflect what's, what's needed, uh, what agencies should expect from their networks today. We just have uh, 20 seconds left, Tony. You have, you're casting this as an opportunity for agencies to transform the way they do things and not just write a new contract, it sounds like. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's, it's critical. It's the right time. The technology is very, very fresh and can carry the agencies for a long time forward. Tony Bardo of Hughes, great to talk to you, my friend. Thank you, Francis.